am so grateful for this full and wonderful worship service we've had today. Hasn't it been a blessing? And uh, most of all, uh, Cody, uh, to be able to celebrate your baptism today with you. I'm well aware of what the time is. But I got to tell you, I got a full sermon for you today. Is that okay? All right. And last Sabbath, which was also a wonderful worship service, I had planned to only talk about 10 to 15 minutes. And uh, when and it was a wonderful worship service that we had uh, last Sabbath. And when we, when we got home, Leela said, I, Daddy, I loved your sermon. And I said, oh, thank you. She said, um, yeah, but it wasn't long enough. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, well, that's so sweet. You liked it so much, you wanted it to be longer? She's like, yeah, I did not sleep long enough. <laughs> so for some of you that are really weary from the holidays, if you need some extra sleep, I got a full sermon for you <laughs> this morning. But I would encourage you to try to stay awake because I think the Lord has some good news for us today. It is Christmas tomorrow, kind of, kind of snuck up really quickly. Are you excited? Yeah? If you have uh, little ones in your house or were lucky enough to have you know, younger kids around during Christmas time, you know that for them especially, expectations are sky high. Like it's gonna be hard to sleep tonight. You've probably seen them many different moments going around the tree, inspecting the presents, the size and shape, and holding them and shaking them, you know, trying to figure out what they're going to get. Is it going to be what they were hoping for? Expectations for kids at this time of the year are through the roof. That's why it was so cruel to see this bit a couple years back that one of the late-night talk show hosts did. I don't know if any of you have seen that, where he asked parents to wrap terrible gifts for their kids and give it to them like, you know, it was for real, and of course videotape the whole thing and then send it in to the show. Uh, the first kid opens up a half bottle of apple juice. The next kid, a little girl, opens up this totally black, rotten banana. She's very confused and starts crying. The next little girl opens an onion, same reaction. The next kid gets a half-eaten peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then it ends with like this 10-year-old tough boy getting this pink Hello Kitty sweater. <laughs> and his parents like, you have to wear that. We thought long and hard for that. He's like, cry, don't make me wear this, you know. It was really tough to watch. You know, these kids were confused, sad. Most of them broke down in tears. One of them threw the gift back at their parents <laughs> because it wasn't anything close to what they were expecting. Now, I know it was kind of cruel that, that the parents did this, although you could tell they were having fun. <laughs> videoing this, but it does illustrate the fact that sometimes our expectations are often very different from what happens in reality. Today we are going to relive part of the Christmas story that reminds us of this truth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're not going to have any scriptures on the screen, so if you got it in your phone or in an actual hardcover Bible, you know, open that up with me to Matthew chapter 2, where we find a few wise men in search of the newborn king who I think could not possibly have expected what they found when they finally reached him. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, 
During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. Yeah, right. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. What profound excitement and anticipation these three wise men must have had as they saw that star rise again and they begin to follow it. And then when it stops, it, it starts, it, it re is, arrives at its resting place. I bet their hearts nearly beat right out of their chests knowing that they would finally see the one whom they've traveled so far to see. I also imagine as they got closer to Bethlehem that they would have started looking around for admiring crowds or, or maybe guards standing watch to protect this newborn king. I wonder if they listened for the sound of music and dancing that the people must be doing to express the joy that they have that the one so majestically prophesied and desperately hoped for is finally here. You know, it's very interesting that these wise men were even on the search for a prophesied Jewish Messiah at all. The Magi were pagan philosophers. They held great influence in the area of Parthia. It's a region that uh, encompassed part of Babylon's territory, which the Romans had not conquered yet. So influential were they that they were partly responsible for choosing the kings in Parthia. So no wonder Herod was a little worried when they came and said, we're going to go visit a king. So why are these pagan philosophers even interested in the Messiah of Jewish prophecy? Surely there's no shortage of gods back home. Well, many scholars suggest that these magi were likely descendants of the class of wise men who Nebuchadnezzar turned to when he had his dream in Daniel chapter 2. You may remember the story, and if some of you don't, let me refresh your minds. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He gets the wise men together, and he says, I want you to not just tell me what the dream means, but before I tell you what kind of dream I had, I want you to even tell me the dream. And of course, they couldn't do this. And the king was furious, and he threatens to kill them. But then Daniel enters the scene, and he stalls so that he can go seek God in prayer. And as you may remember, God revealed to Daniel the, the meaning and the actual dream itself. And then Daniel did like the most gracious thing imaginable. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 24, it said, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute those wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream. Daniel was single-handedly responsible for saving the lives of those wise men. And it seems that for some of them, it didn't matter much because some still tried to or did throw him in the lion's den not too long after. But it seems at least for some, 
of the wise men, they began to learn the lesson through Daniel's life and ministry that the God of the Hebrews is the real deal, that he always comes through, and that those who follow him are people of profound and honorable character. Scholars think that maybe the record of those events were kept somewhere that these wise men studied. So perhaps the interest of the Magi in the Messiah was the result of the faithfulness of Daniel. This isn't really part of our, the main part of our message today, but I can't help but pause and say, if you ever wonder if your life can matter and have a ripple effect for the kingdom of God, just look at Daniel's life. You never know what kind of seeds you are planting and what kind of fruit they will bear down the road. Don't ever underestimate the power of who you are in the Lord's hands. Well, now the moment is here when the wise men, many generations, have arrived at the promised Messiah that they've studied so much about. What would it be like? What would they feel and think as they come into his presence? And yet, as these wealthy and influential scholars arrive, they see no admiring crowds or royal guards or dancing or music. Rather, they would happen upon a scene where nobody seemed to act as if anything special was going on at all. In her book, Desire of Ages, Ellen White describes the scene this way. She says, At Bethlehem, the wise men found no royal guard stationed to protect the newborn king. None of the world's honored men were in attendance. Jesus was cradled in a manger. His parents, uneducated peasants, were his only guardians. Given all their expectations, all their years of study, following that star for such a long distance, do you think that those wise men were overwhelmed or underwhelmed? by what they found. Now there is some debate about when the wise men exactly arrived to see Mary and Joseph, and if Mary and Joseph are still in that stable or barn and, and the baby is still in the manger, or if they are now in a more permanent dwelling place in some kind of home. But regardless of whether or not they were in the stable or some other kind of dwelling, no doubt it was a humble one. So whichever dwelling place the wise men arrived at I think we might as well still call it a stable because that's what it would have seemed like compared to what royalty are usually found in. And stable was a more catchy word to put in the sermon title, so that's what we went with. Well, whatever kind of dwelling place they found them in, it would have been way less than what they would have expected for royalty, right? Which leads me to ask you the question today. What are we to do when we follow a star, but find a stable. I have seen that happen to many people. Where they follow a star, they reach for a dream, they took off with energy and passion, pursuing something magnificent, but instead of reaching the heights that they've dreamed for, they found themselves in a stable. I've seen a few people experience that, like fresh out of grad school or college and um, looking for that dream job. And, and sometimes they get it, but maybe after a while they discover the dream job wasn't what they thought it was and they find themselves in a stable. Or maybe they do get that dream job and it turns out to be even better than they expected, but then something tragic or unfortunate happens and they lose it. 
There's times in my life where I've been privileged to be up on a stage like this, but usually I'm standing a little further back because there's other people up here with me, and there's a lady here dressed in a beautiful white flowing gown, and a guy here who finally cleaned up pretty nice, and their friends are up here, and there's flowers and ribbons and rings and promises. And everybody leaves, and then a little bit later, those promises get tested, and that couple finds themselves in a stable. I've seen people who are feeling as healthy as can be. They are making great life choices about diet and exercise. And then all of a sudden, one day they get a pain. And they go to the doctor and they get news that their health has taken a turn for the worse. And they find themselves in a stable. What are we to do when we follow a star but end up in a stable? tough question to answer. It's a tough place to be in the stable. But I'd like to suggest that we do exactly what these three wise men did when they arrived in the stable. Going on to verse 11. Here's the first thing they did. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Even though it must have looked nothing like what they expected, the Magi choose to look for God and worship him anyway. When you find yourself in a stable, the first thing you should do is keep your eyes open for God and keep worshiping him. Oh, that sounds good, Darren. That makes for a nice little uh, sentence in your sermon, but it's hard in the stable. In fact, it's very dark in the stable. It is hard to see God there. I know it's hard, but let me remind you a little bit from God's word, just a few of the many stories we have that remind us that you can find him there. Like when Moses was no longer able to lead the Israelites and he calmed any fears or doubts that Joshua would have had about being the new leader or that the people may have had regarding taking the promised land from the Canaanites when he said in Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Or how about David, who found himself in countless stables because he had countless memories, and there's so many of his psalms that we could turn to. But how about the most well-known of all, where he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And when the priests and prophets and other Hebrew people were carried off into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar, the prophet Jeremiah reminded them of God's promise that not only did he have a plan for them to prosper, but also that you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Over and over again, God's words remind us that even though it is dark in the stable, you can find came across this article from a pastor named Chris Erdman who was describing how he comes across God's presence in surprising places. Like when he went to visit one of his church members named Mary. I'll read in his own words how he describes it. He said, today I visited Mary for the first time in her new home. Just a few days earlier, she was moved from the hospital to this nursing home, a move she dreaded a move she fought tooth and nail. Mary never planned to spend her golden years in a nursing home. Providence has turned the tables on Mary. 
Her stroke, that happened just recently, partially paralyzed one side of her body. Now she cannot speak the way she wants to. A woman who was used to serving others is forced to now swallow her pride. She must learn to receive. Even in this bustling center of geriatric care, she sits alone in her wheelchair, isolated from family and friends. As I walk down the hallways of the nursing home, my eyes search for her face. There she is. Well, Mary, I holler. Mary turns her head. Oh, my friend. Bright smile, twinkling eyes, warm hug. In this unguarded moment, Mary's speech is clear. It's when she tries the hardest that things get garbled. Now Mary desperately wants to talk, but can't. Her her desperation only makes her more frustrated, and after a few attempts at a conversation, I suggest, why don't we go down to the activity center? We make our way down there and sit down, and I say, I have a gift for you, Mary. You see, several years ago, Mary gave me a gift her poetry. Mary's poetry is not merely just a few uh, pages of collections of pretty verses, but a huge volume of expressions of heartfelt devotion to Jesus, a window into this saint's prayer life. Today, I want to return the gift to her. I can't give Mary her speech back, but I can give her the gift of memory. Her eyes betray her eagerness as I begin to open the envelope, and I begin to read the first poem. After just a few words, her eyes brighten. She leans forward and she tries to form a question on her lips, but she can't get it out. And I say, yes, it's yours, Mary. She smiles and she laughs. It's good, isn't it, I say. And she giggles like a little schoolgirl. Yes, it's good, Mary, I say. For the next hour, we read her poems and prayers together and laugh and worship. Surrounded by wheelchairs and white hair, loneliness and boredom, we roar and giggle and feel the presence of Jesus. I know it's dark in the stable, but you can find him there. Well, there's more that these magi would suggest we do when we follow the star, but find ourselves in a stable. And that is to give our best gifts. You see, when they arrived at such a place, the Magi, I I think that they could have easily held back all those lavished gifts they they brought. They were their best. They could have easily thought, maybe this isn't the right one. Maybe our navigation calculations were a little bit off. These are just simple people. The value of our gifts could be lost on them. They could have held back, but they didn't. We read this in the second half of verse 11. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, it's really hard to give good gifts, let alone your best, when you're in the stable. Especially if somebody helped put us there. (laughs) Like if you have a boss that devalues or discounts you, it is hard to give your best at work. If you get a cold shoulder at home, it is easy to want to give a colder one back. When finances are tight, it is easy to become less generous. When we have a conflict with someone or something in the church, it can be easy to hold back, giving our time and our talents. But the wise men invite us to give the best we have, even in the midst of a stable. 
I was trying to think of a good story or illustration for this, and I couldn't help but think of the other Joseph in the Bible. You know, the one with the coat of many colors? I can't even imagine having to go through some of the stables that he had to go through. Being sold, betrayed by my own family, being made a slave. But then, even in the midst of that, Joseph chooses to give his best, even as he is a slave in Potiphar's house. And it says in the story that everything he touched flourished. It seemed like it was going well. I'm glad he's, I'm giving my best. God's blessing that. Maybe things are going to get better, but then things don't get better. Things get worse. And maybe you remember the story Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of doing something he didn't do, and he gets thrown into prison. Spends years there, another stable. But he continues to give his best gifts in the next location. And sometimes the best gifts that Joseph gave were lost on the people around him. He was still treated unfairly at times, but ultimately did God not bless the best that Joseph gave? Even if our best gifts get lost on other people, they are never lost on God. He sees what you do for him, especially in the stable. And then finally, in verse 12, it gives us, I think, one more important thing for us to be mindful of as we find ourselves in a stable. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When you follow a star but find it to be a stable, the third thing you should do is allow God to change the direction of your life. I know stables are difficult. I know they can be devastating. I know that they are so dark, it is hard to see past them. But don't ever forget that God can use that stable. He can redeem it and put you on a different direction in your life that can be for the better even. Some of you older folks may remember the name Chuck Colson. I did not know who that was, so hopefully that means I'm not an older folk yet. But if you do know what that name is, that's, you shouldn't feel embarrassed. It's, you know, you're just very wise and been around for a while. But some of you folks may remember the name Chuck Colson. He was special counsel to President Nixon during the whole Watergate scandal. He was told, actually, by the prosecutors that they were not going to indict him, that he wasn't going to go to prison. But then somebody found some negative-sounding recordings and, and strung them together on some tapes and released them, and he did end up being indicted and went to prison. A lot of people think that Colson had this foxhole conversion while in prison, but he actually, and he accepted Jesus uh, as his Lord and Savior while there, but the truth is that he accepted Jesus into his life 18 months before he went to prison. And it wasn't until after he became a, a Christian that his life began to appear to fall apart. So he found himself in a stable. And though it was hard, he looked for and worshipped God the same. He decided to still give his best, even though it was challenging. And the result was that God led in a new direction that changed his life. He started this prison ministry called Prison Fellowship that has impacted hundreds of thousands of people now. He, even after he was released, continued to build on this, wrote many books, helped a lot of people. I want to read to you in his words how he describes God changing the direction of his life through this stable experience. 
He said, in addition to the prison fellowship, by means of books, God has used uh, me to touch hundreds of thousands of lives. The interesting thing is that what he chose to use in my life was not my successes or academic awards or achievements or triumphs. I mean, I argued before the Supreme Court. I was the president's assistant. I was an administrative assistant in the Senate writing laws. But God used none of those things. Instead, he chose to use a prisoner who was broken. Now I see that the most significant thing about my life was my defeat. I really thank God for it. What matters is not what happens to you, but how you react to what happens to you. More important than what you do is what God does through you. And you'll never find that out except in those moments when you have no choice but to surrender yourself completely to him. If you let him, God can take that stable experience and put you on a different, better path in your life. I know changing direction isn't easy, <laughs> that it can be very, very hard. And maybe it will be a painful process. But I know that there is power in Christ that's different from any other power that could help you make a change. In fact, if you want to talk about somebody who did the ultimate change of direction, look no further than Jesus himself. He had all the glory, all the power, all the authority, all the beauty, and yet he did not use it for his own advantage. He used it for yours and for mine. The eternal king, the creator of stars and galaxies, changed himself into a helpless babe and went into the stable. And because of that decision that he made, because of his life and death and resurrection, he has the power to change the direction of your life if you let him. And you know, family, where that change starts is right back to where we are this Christmas season. It's too bad we need an excuse to do this, but at least we do it once a year. The place to start for whatever change of direction needs to take place in your life begins with a long, deep, loving gaze into the manger in the stable. For that is where you will find not just the power, but the person who will lead you in the direction you need to go and into his great kingdom. So come, all you faithful, joyful, and triumphant, come even in the stable and adore him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you forever for your willingness to come to the stable so that we can have hope in the midst of our own. Thank you for the gift that you are, in Jesus' name.